Mississippi's this morning on the life of Abraham. So we're going to be camped out in Genesis 12 through 25 for a few months. I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from Abraham's life on how God deals with his people. Abraham, you probably know, is one of the most important Bible characters. He is the father of the Jews, the Muslims, and Christians. I'm going to begin with actually reading Genesis 11:27 to 32, which says, and this is the family tree of Abraham. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So the writer of the book of Genesis, Moses, begins Abraham's story with his father, Terah. He lists his three sons, the one who died, who had Lot. He mentions Abraham's wife, Sarai, who we will know as Sarah, and I may mess up her name early on here and call her Sarah instead of Sarai, so um, be patient with me there. Uh, We're told about that they are half-siblings. We'll find that out later about Sarai and Abram, or Abraham. They were half-siblings, same father, different mothers, and that's going to play into our story today. Now, we need to understand that... um, Relatives married each other 4,000 years ago and lived longer than we do today. It says they were from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, there's two possibilities on where that place is on the map. The first would be southeast Iraq, where the Euphrates and Tigris rivers merge. Tradition holds that to be the place of Abraham's birth. And all your Bible maps, if you open your Bible about Abraham's life, it would show southeast Iraq is where he came from. And there's plenty of good evidence of that. However, there's another view, and I hold to this view, that Abraham came from southeast Turkey, near the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. There's a town there, even today, called San La Urfa, or Urfa for short, even to this day. And the city of Haran, where they later settled, is pretty close by. This place was where Abraham sent Isaac to find a wife near where Jacob flees Esau because they had relatives there. So that's the case, I think, for the southeast Turkey location. This area was the center of worship of the moon god named Sin, S-I-N. In fact, Terah's name means moon. If you think of Islam, the crescent moon is the symbol of Islamic faith. And Muhammad's family were moon worshippers. 
Sarai's name means princess, and the other sister-in-law, Milcah, was named after the moon god's daughter. So here we have a family completely awash in idol worship. Every night they would see their God's splendid procession across the evening sky. Joshua says in 24:2, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So that's the assessment of Abraham. He was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. He worshiped the moon god sin. But it didn't exclude him from God's love, did it? Your past is not as important as your future. It's God's love that counts. It's God's plan that counts. It's God's grace that counts. I shouldn't be standing here before you preaching the gospel. I was raised in a Christian home, but during my teen years, completely rejected it, walked away from it, had no interest in it whatsoever. And it took a actual miracle to bring me to saving faith. My high school friends were shocked that I'd become a Christian and when I, they learned that I was a pastor. So each and every one of us at one time or another We're walking in our own form of idol worship far from God who called us out of that life of sin and will use you. Even if you have a questionable past. Verse 31 says they left Ur for the land of Canaan, the promised land, the first reference in scripture to it. Stephen in Acts 7, 2 to 4 said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So Abraham and his family hear the call at Ur to leave for Canaan, and they left, and they arrived at Haran, and they settled there, which is about the halfway point, a halfway faith, a halfway obedience. It would seem to be it's better than where they were living before. Yes, they're going in the right direction, but they didn't go all the way. Haran stands for compromise. Settling for second best. I think that's where a lot of Christians reside. Something interesting about this place, Haran, it was also a center of moon worship, which explains why they stopped there. It was familiar. They were used to it. What's your Haran? So Abraham would hear a call from God to leave that place, too. But his father had to die first. So I wonder who has to die before you'll obey God. What will it take to push you or me off the fence of compromise and into obeying God, what he's really calling you to do? So let's talk about that call of God and promises. Genesis 12, 1 to 5. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed for from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan. So Abraham was 75 when the call comes to leave Haran. He's leaving behind the security of country and culture and clan and religion. It's a call to leave, to relinquish, to disassociate. It'd be like you hearing a call to leave Mechanicsville or Hanover or wherever you live in the area. Leave your family and go to a Middle East mission field. You'd be leaving behind your country, your culture, your family. You'd be leaving behind your inheritance, your support system, and your protection. Jesus said this in Matthew 8:34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus is calling us to to radical obedience, to surrender, to commitment. I think of commitment as two levels. Exemplified by the chicken and the pig at the ham and egg breakfast. The chicken got involved in the breakfast. The pig was totally committed. God wants to take you from somewhere to somewhere better. So he invites you on a journey to travel with him. You're not going to stay in the same place spiritually any longer, though you might geographically. But you will have to leave. You'll have to relinquish the control of your life and your will to God's will. So let's talk about the call. What is it? Does God give you a call on the phone? Do you hear an audible voice? Do you see a literal sign in the sky? I think of it as more an inner knowing that God will later confirm in many ways through others. If God can get a salmon to swim 4,000 miles upstream to the very place it was hatched to lay its eggs, I think he's able to get you to where he wants you to go to. Here are the components of a call. The first thing is it's personal. The Lord said to Abram, not to somebody else who would tell him. Someone else might confirm the call, but he comes to you personally. It isn't that you see or hear someone else doing something and you say, that looks pretty good. I think I'll do that, too. Big things are always personal. You're called a salvation. You're called a minister. And I don't mean that professionally, but you using your gifts to serve the body of Christ. The call to be holy is personal. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Major life decisions usually involve a call to move out of state, to get married, to go into full-time ministry or missions. For me, getting married, going to seminary in California and pastoring the three pastorates that we had were calls of God. And we sought him and he spoke clearly. God will speak to you personally, which is very exciting, but also can be scary. Secondly, the call is clear. Go from your country, kindred, and father's house to the land I will show you. That's clear. There's no ambiguity there at all. But also, you notice, there's no blueprint for where you're going or what you're going to do either. But the call to go is clear. Jesus' call is clear. Follow me. His disciples didn't know where he was going, so therefore they didn't know where they were going. But they followed him. Thirdly, the call is non-negotiable. You don't negotiate with God about it. Notice it says go to. It's a command, not a suggestion. God didn't ask Abraham how he felt about moving. He didn't ask him his weather preferences. He doesn't ask his opinion at all. Fourth thing about a call It contains promises. We see that in verses 2 and 3. I hope you noticed as I was reading it, the four I wills contained in the text. Big promises. Big promises motivate us because God is good. And these promises and God's plan are always for our best. He promises that Abraham would be a great nation. Now think about this. He's one man in other people's country. He has no children and his wife is barren. How's that going to happen? He promises to make his name great. The people before him in the previous chapter, Genesis 11, the people of Babel tried to make a great name for themselves. And we see what happened to them. God foiled their plan. He promises that Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world. Talk about a huge plan. That's as big as it gets. That salvation would begin with Abraham be fulfilled in Christ for the whole world. It's a summons to leave and receive, to relinquish and receive. Fifth thing about the call is it brings change. We see that in verses four and five. It says, Abraham went as the Lord told him. He obeyed, even though he didn't even know where he was going. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's called faith. You don't always know, but you know God called you. And so you begin taking those steps. He left what was secure. He left his family and friends. He left his moon God behind. Leave everything behind. And only those who leave realize all that God has for them. He had no map. He had no triple A trip tick. Anybody remember those? He had no GPS system, no Waze app, no Siri, 
No motel reservations. God would have to guide him. I learned this about the African Impala that I didn't know. They can jump 10 foot high and 30 foot long. Yet they could stay in a zoo with a fence that's three foot tall. They could easily jump over it, but they don't because they won't jump unless they can see where their feet are going to land. And so they designed the fence in such a way they you can't see where their feet are going to land. So they stay within their man-made prison. And I wonder how many of us stay safe in our Haran instead of jumping into God's adventure that he's called us to. There's something we need to discuss, though, in verses four and five, and that's it's the phrase he took a lot with him. I was thinking about that, thinking, was that good? Was that partial obedience? Wasn't he told to leave his family? Now, we know that Lot's father died, Abraham's brother. So did Abraham, Abram, adopt him? I don't know. We're not told. Since Sarah was barren, maybe he thought that Lot would be his heir since he didn't have an heir. Did he feel responsible somehow for Lot? Like maybe they had kind of a soul tie or, or they were emotionally bound in an unhealthy way because Lot is going to get Abraham into some big trouble. And Abraham's going to rescue him, feeling like he's got to rescue Lot, even though he's going to risk his own life and risk this call that God has placed upon him. What about you? Would you have obeyed God or would you have partially obeyed? Well, we see that God permitted Lot to go with Abram and God allows oftentimes less than 100 percent obedience, especially early in our Christian lives. But we're going to have to learn some hard lessons the hard way. Often we want a detailed plan for our lives. And God just says, go, go in faith. I'll show you. And near the end of Abram's life, God is going to ask the impossible of him. Will he obey? If God is your co-pilot, you better change seats. Let's talk about travels and altars. God is calling you on a spiritual journey. He has a promised land for you. And once you arrive there, you know what you're going to find? Problems. Let's read Genesis 12, 6 to 9. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Verse six says the Canaanites were in the land. And I think, wait a minute, God, you said you were giving me this land and the current owners are still there. It's similar in Israel today. He's one man, not an army. This is a big problem because these folks weren't nice. They were evil, wicked, cruel, child sacrificing pagans. Says he moved on to Shechem. Today, that place is Nablus, which is in the West Bank. Still a contentious place. Joshua died there at Shechem. 
Solomon's kingdom was divided there. He stopped at the Oak of Morah. The, the word Morah means teacher. It was a center of Canaanite worship. There were lots of shrines to the gods there at the Oak of Morah. It was an occult place. It was a place where Jacob buried his wife's idols. So we bury what isn't of God there. We have a funeral for the old life that we've been trusting in and the things of the world there. At this most wicked place, the scripture says God appeared to him. That's called a theopony. A theopony is the appearance of God in human form. So God told him here at this place, the land is for future offspring. Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Jesus. He spoke to him in verse one and appears to him in verse seven. So we see that the more we obey, more revelation comes to us. And notice what Abraham did at this most pagan of all places. Build an altar. An altar is a witness of worship to the true God in the midst of a wicked world. In the midst of this place with all the paganism and false teaching going on, he built an altar to God. And you and I can do the same. Our culture is becoming more and more godless and wicked where we're being more and more forced to take a stand, to steal our backbones, to not compromise and turn our backs on God, to make the hard choice to not go along, to get along. I can see some real chaos coming to our country this year. It'll test our faith. So altars are places where you receive revelation from God. So memorialize such places. Write it down in your journal. Remember it. Place a stone of remembrance there. It's an important place. God is showing you that you can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it by reading more books. Trying harder is not going to cut it. You surrender all at the altar. So an altar is a place of surrender, a place where you encounter God. He'll teach you his ways. Mora, remember, means teacher. So every day I come to God in his word. Every morning is a quiet time where I let God teach me from his word. Then it says he moved on to the Bethel I region and built an altar there. The word Bethel means house of God. I means ruins. So he worshiped in God's house. So going to church keeps you from ruin. We need fellowship. The writer to the Hebrews in 1025 said, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the book that Jody referenced earlier called Sunday by Paul David Tripp, Here's a good quote. May we look with anticipation to the weekly gathering as a gift. Just as we would look with anticipation at opening a gift handed to us by a loved one. Corporate worship is God's weekly gift to us. Wrapped in the grace of Jesus and given by the one who created us. Knows us. Understands the temptations that greet us in the broken world we live in. And offers us the help we need. 
This gathering reminds us that God will never grow tired of us, never regret that we are in his family and never walk away in disgust. No, he welcomes us to gather once again in the gathering to remember and in remembering to have our values clarified and in having our values clarified to have the worship of our hearts reclaimed and our living reordered. May we receive his gift of the gathering of his church with joy. We're not meant to be Lone Ranger Christians trying to make it out there in the world. At Shechem, he built an altar for personal worship. At Bethel, for corporate worship. Then he continued traveling southward to the Negev, which is a desert region of southern Israel. It's a dry place. And when he arrived, there was a famine there. And I wonder, should he have moved there in the first place? He wasn't told to, but he handled the problem of the Canaanites well. He built an altar, but he did not handle the problem of the famine well, which brings us to our next story in Genesis 12, 10 to 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now, then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So he left Bethel and went to Egypt. I don't see Anywhere in the text where God tells him to go there. Now he's out of the promised land. Egypt in scripture stands for the world. Pharaoh represents Satan. Egypt is the world in scripture. Pharaoh represents Satan. This is not a good move. We get out ahead of God and we get into big trouble. He hadn't been afraid of the Canaanites. But he fears Pharaoh and the Egyptians. When you're out of God's will, you have fear. You get worried about your own skin. So he tells Sarah to lie. When you're out of God's will, you lie. He never builds an altar in Egypt. He never worships God there. He just gets rich. He moved away from God. You can't worship God with impurity in your heart. Maybe Lot and Sarai had complained to him back in the Negev. We don't have enough to eat here. Look, you can't blame her, sir. You're the spiritual leader of your home. He put 
Sarai in a bad place. He risked her purity. He risked her reputation. Our sin hurts other people. And his son Isaac would do the exact same thing in Genesis 26. And Abraham is going to do this exact same thing again. It's his besetting sin. Now, I have to have a comment here on Sarah's beauty. She was so beautiful, she was taken into Pharaoh's harem at age 65. Now, lifespans were longer then, so perhaps she looked more like 35 than 65. I think she must have had a beauty secret. Oil of delay. I'm convinced that's what she was using. In verse 16, Abraham profited in Egypt. He acquired possessions, including female servants. This really jumped out at me because I know later in the Abraham story in 16.1 that he had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. They bought her at this time. She came back with them into Israel proper, into Canaan, and Sarai was barren. And so Abraham had a child with this woman. This child was named Ishmael, who would become the head of Arab nations today. See what sin can do? Create a bunch of problems for you in the present and in the future. So Abraham and his family are expelled from Egypt, deported, kicked out, rebuked by the Pharaoh. Instead of being a good witness to this pagan king for God, the pagan king has to correct him on morality. He failed. We fail. He went back to where he had previously built an altar. And we read that in Genesis 13, 1 to 4. So Abram went up from Egypt He and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. That's good. He repented. And redid what he did at first. We see that principle in Revelation 2, 5 also. God can redeem our mistakes. He can bring good out of bad when we mess up. So where are you at today? Are you in error? That means you don't know the Lord. Are you in Haran, a place of compromise? You're a believer but you're compromising your Christian faith right now. Are you in Egypt? You're, you've backslidden. Are you in Canaan, the place where God has called you to worship him? Except for Canaan, everywhere else there's hope. You can move out of that place. So I want to pray for you right now. If you're at one of those other places, that you'll move out of there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... The life of Abraham, we see how important he was that you actually call him your friend. And yet he messed up in a big way, especially putting his wife's life at risk. Oh, Lord, you are so forgiving and loving and patient with us. Forgive us today for our sins. 
May we be right with you. If there's someone here that doesn't have that initial relationship, doesn't have you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior and Lord, that right there where they're seated right now, they would confess their sins and receive you as Savior and then walk with you as Lord. Anyone who's drifting away from you, holding on to a besetting sin, or has backslidden, Lord, I pray that you would restore them again, that they would turn back to you and redo what they did at first. And those in Canaan, Lord, let them build an altar there to you and worship you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.